Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sadie. Uh, this summer, if you could go to the next slide, uh, this summer a guy named John Ronson, he's a um, journalist, came out with a book called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And in it, in the next slide, uh, he tells the story of uh, this woman, Lindsay Stone. Uh, Lindsay Stone works with um, uh, people with learning disabilities, children and adults. Uh, she loves her job and she's good at it. And uh, so Lindsay Stone uh, takes a trip uh, to Washington, D.C. Uh, with these folks. They go on a field trip. And uh, she sort of plays this game with a friend of hers where uh, they find different signs um, and pose in front of them and like do the exact opposite of what the signs say. So like there's one that sign that says no smoking. She has a cigarette. There's like one like don't run and she's posing herself like sprinting in front of it. And um, it's all fun. They're just having jokes and stuff until uh, they get to Arlington National Cemetery. Uh-oh. Um, Arlington National Cemetery is since the Civil War where um, veterans are buried. And, and they get to a sign, and it says on this sign, um, silence and respect. And so in keeping with the game, not thinking about, you know, uh, what they're doing too hard, they're just trying to have fun, she takes this picture of herself um, pretending to scream, making a rude hand gesture, and she... Uh, post it to Facebook. Um, in a couple hours, she has about a thousand comments on this picture, um, and they're the most vitriolic, hateful messages you can imagine. I mean, she has people telling her, you know, I wish you were dead and worse, uh, all kinds of language that I can't repeat here. She goes to bed. She wakes up in the morning to a camera crew in front of her house. This had gone viral, and she had gotten in the news for this bad joke. Um, uh, she goes into work. Her boss doesn't even let her into the building. He fires her in the parking lot, takes her keys. She's lost everything. Uh, she's lost her job. She's lost all of her self-respect. She's losing friends. Um, she doesn't for a year. She only leaves her house when she absolutely has to. Uh, she's depressed. She can't even sleep. She's insomniac. Um, John Ronson makes the point that we're, we're kind of seeing a renaissance of public shaming in this country over now that we have things like Twitter and Facebook, and it's, it's easy to forget that there's a person on the other side of the screen. Uh, and he does, he does his homework here. He says, we, we used to do this all the time, public shaming. We used to have the stocks. And uh, about 1839 uh, in America, the stocks became illegal. Public shaming um, was struck. You can't do that anymore. Why? Well, the common knowledge is that cities grew too big. It was too hard to police this way. Um, the tight-knit communities of, like, colonial America were, like, just... Uh, you can't keep track of people. Public shaming just doesn't work like it used to. And uh, Ron Johnson looks it up, and he says, well, that's John Ronson. 
Chandra, you can, yeah, I knew I was going to do that. I did it. Uh, he, he looks into it. He looks up the uh, history of it, and he finds uh, that's not actually the case. He finds um, pastors speaking out against uh, public shaming because it's too cruel. Uh, it's cruel and unusual punishment. He, uh, he gives the story of this woman uh, who was caught in adultery. This used to be an actual crime uh, in this country. She was caught in adultery, and she was sentenced to uh, flogging in the public square. She's going to be whipped in public. And she approaches the judge alone. Uh, she pulls him aside and says, please, please, please whip me in the morning before anyone gets up. She's about to be whipped in public, and she says, yeah, I'll t- give me the beating. Just don't do it in public. Wow. I can absolutely identify with that. Um, we live in a country where we can uh, lock people up for the rest of their lives, but we don't publicly shame people anymore because it's too cruel. That's too cruel. Um, such is shame uh, in our country uh, and in the world. Um, so in this book, uh, John Ronson says, what's the point of this? What, what is shame? Shame is the terror of being found out. Um, and I think it's the universal experience of mankind since uh, Adam and Eve uh, put the fig leaves together. Um, so our sermon series uh, on the next slide is uh, that Matt's been working on um, for the past few weeks and will continue to do so. It's called uh, Jesus, the Bible, Sex, and You. Yes, it's going to get weird. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, like I said, my name's Trevor. I'm um, uh, a grad student here at IU. Um, and Matt asked me to speak on this subject because he knows that I have personal experience with uh, shame, especially sexual shame, and I've learned a lot, and I think I've got um, something to share. Um, so I get to teach, and I told, I told Matt, you know, the one thing, I'm used to 50-minute lectures, but the good news is uh, I do think I have enough material to fill the whole two hours, um, <laughs> so no worries. What? <laughs> Okay. A couple other things um, Matt always wants to reiterate in front of these um, sermons, and I want to reiterate today. Um, He says this is not about condemnation or contempt, and especially today. (laughs) I'm specifically uh, uh, preaching against condemnation and contempt. uh, contempt. This is not about politics or how to win the culture war at all. That's not our interest. Politics is not our interest today. Um, This is not about pledges, rings, or just say no campaigns. This is about the mission of Jesus to make you absolutely holy and wildly free and deeply satisfying relational, uh, in a relational life with God and with others. Um, he gives us the four assumptions we'll be working from uh, in this series today and for the next weeks. Um, sex is God's idea, and it's one of his better ones, Matt always adds. Sex is God's idea. We need sexual healing. Number three, he says Jesus is the most sexually fulfilled person ever. You'll have to ask him about that one. I don't know. That one's weird. Um, His message there, um, that does sound very weird, right? Uh, And his message, I think, is that um, sex isn't about pleasure, and it's not even about procreation. Sex is about intimacy. And because of the intimacy God had with the Father and with his friends, um, in that way, Jesus was the most... Uh, fulfilled person ever to walk the face of the planet. Um, 
And again, four, uh, God's design for your sexuality is absolutely holy and wildly free. Freedom. 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 Um, uh, on the next slide is the uh, uh, sermon schedule today from Shame to Grace. And these are the um, sermons Matt will be, uh, when he returns, will be preaching on. So, today, uh, the next slide. Um, I'm going to be asking three questions, speaking to three questions, and then I'm going to give you a little bit of what this has looked like in my own life. Okay. Number one, what is shame? What is this shame I've been talking about? Two, what's its purpose? And three, uh, what do we do with it? What is it? What's its for? And where do we take it? What are we supposed to do with it? Okay, the next slide. Um, so, there's a shameologist. Uh, she, she's got this TED Talk. If you, if you Google shame TED, um, you'll come up with Breen Brown. Um, that's like her nickname. She calls it like her superhero name is shame TED. Uh, she talks about shame um, in all areas of life. She's, she's the expert. She's a PhD psychologist writing books like she is the expert. Um, if you hear nothing but like this name and you go and Google her and you watch your talks, like you will not have wasted your time this morning. She's phenomenal. Um, one distinction she makes that I want to make is shame versus guilt. Two different things, okay? Um, guilt uh, is when you've done something wrong, okay? And we, we know today, if we believe the Bible, that there is such a thing as right and wrong. The message today isn't don't feel shame, don't worry about it, everything's fine, don't worry about it. That's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches there is a standard, we don't live up to it, but Jesus has lived up to it for us. Excuse me. And sometimes um, we are guilty. We do make decisions to follow our own paths and not God. That's what guilt is. Guilt says you have done wrong. Shame says you are wrong. Guilt says you have done evil, and shame says you are evil. Um, they're two different things, and I'd like to point out um, that uh, shame, you can see where the, there's like that hair's difference between them, uh, but shame doesn't require guilt at all. Uh, in a room this size, I know uh, that there are going to be people here experiencing shame, probably sexual shame, that hasn't been of their own making at all. There have been victims of abuse, uh, I'm sure this morning, um, that experienced that shame um, that hasn't been their fault. Um, so what is shame? Shame is that voice uh, inside your head and mind. Do you hear this voice? The voice says you're not good enough. The voice that says you're not smart enough. The voice that says you're not working hard on your dissertation enough. <laughs> Wait, crap. Um, the voice that says you're not beautiful enough, you're not likable enough. Do you hear this voice? Have you ever asked this voice for what? Enough, enough for what? I'm not good enough for, well, okay, so my thing is right now is, am I doing enough, am I working hard enough? Well, like to graduate, like yeah, eventually. I mean, I'm on pace to eventually graduate. 2030 will come, that will happen. Um, that's, that's not what it is. It's, it's for love. It's to be loved. Um, I'm not good enough to be loved, is this voice. Um, shame says, 
you don't belong. You don't belong here. Okay? So where does it come from? Well, if you go down the street to um, uh, the Kinsey Center, uh, they'll tell you a lot of things. Um, uh, the Kinsey Center on Sexuality at IU. Um, where does this shame come from, this feeling, especially with sex? Um, where, where, does, where does shame and sex come from? Well, it's, it's cultural, they'll tell you. Every culture has their own kind of like do's and don'ts about sex. Uh, if, you've, if you've been brought up in a certain culture and you feel bad about the way you're behaving, hey, it's cultural, culturally determined, you'll get over it. Um, it's okay. Kinsey says if you, if you use pornography and you, you experience shame after that, well, you know, that, that's, how it's, that's how you were raised, right? Don't worry, you'll get over it. What does the Bible say? In this passage with Adam and Eve, where does shame come from here? Well, we can, I can tell you where it doesn't come from. Shame doesn't come from religion. It hadn't been invented yet, right? When they put on the fig leaves, that wasn't culture that told them to put on the fig leaves. The Bible's telling us that as soon as they sinned, they, they felt, they went from they were naked and had no shame to they were naked and they were ashamed, and they put together the fig leaves. Um, there's this verse, Ephesians 4.27, it says, do not give the devil a foothold. Have you heard this verse before? Don't give the devil a foothold. Do you want to know what he does when he gets a foothold? He pushes you that hair's distance from, from guilt to shame. He pushes you that hair's distance. You've done wrong because you are wrong. This is the kind of person you are. This is, he wants to take the act and he wants to make it your identity, okay? That's the work of uh, Satan, the accuser. Revelations 12.10, Satan is the accuser who will be overthrown. Um, so guilt can lead us to grief. Guilt can, guilt can lead us to godly grief over what we've done. Shame uh, is strictly, the, is literally, literally the work of the devil, Shame is literally what the devil is trying to get you into today. Um, shame is the message, and I, do I have a slide for this? I hope I do. Yes, there it is. Shame is the message from Satan that you are unlovable. Okay? So what does, this is what shame is. Question two, what is, what is shame, what's its purpose? What's the purpose of shame? Why, why do we still deal with this? Um, well, there's the fantasy about what shame can do, and then there's the reality of what shame actually does. The next slide, um, comedian uh, Chris Hardwick. Um, this guy has been on different TV shows. Maybe you've heard of him, maybe not. He does podcasts and stuff like this. He's a, he's a pretty popular comedian. He's actually coming to the Comedy Attic, um, I think, in a week or two. You can see his name up on the sign. Um, and Chris Hardwick was, got on the topic of Jared Fogle. He got on the topic of Bill Cosby, and we've heard the news, right? Jared Fogle, the subway guy who used to eat at this subway, like what, like a mile over there somewhere, um, recently pled guilty to use of child pornography, okay? Um, about the most shameful thing uh, you can plead guilty to. Um, and Chris Hardwick is talking about this. He's talking about Bill Cosby, and he talks about why do we mock these people? Like, as a comedian, it's my job, Chris Hardwick is saying, to make fun of people like this. It's my job to mock them. It's my job to shame them. Why? Uh, he says this, and this is, 
This is edited for Sunday morning consumption. Um, so the, the literal version is a little bit more strident. He says this, this is our defense mechanism to process these horrible things and gain power over them. We make fun of Jared Fogel because we can't punch him. It's our way of standing on his neck and saying, this is a bad person. Don't be a bad person or we'll stand on your neck. So here's the fantasy of what shame does. Shame controls. Shame is a way to control uh, other people's behavior. Um, shame gives us control. Uh, for me, in my own walk, shame was a way for me not necessarily to control other people. Shame was a way for me to control myself. If I could just beat myself up hard enough, maybe next time I wouldn't act out. Maybe next week I won't use pornography if I can just beat myself up as hard as I can. If I can just feel bad enough about what I've done, then maybe I'll get better. That's what I tried to do. Um, there's a book out there called Infinite Jest. Uh, it was written by this guy, uh, David Foster Wallace. Uh, he just had a movie come out about him um, a month or two ago. Uh, I heard it was pretty good. I didn't see it. So this book, Infinite Jest, is the joke of it is it like is infinitely long. It's like a thousand pages. And it's basically a meditation on addiction. And um, in this book, uh, there's, there's this scene. Um, this isn't, uh, it's not sex-based, but I think it has everything to do with shame uh, and the way I felt it. This, this character, he's addicted to pot. Wait, pot's not addictive. In my experience, anything, any good thing, in my experience, can become an addiction. Any good thing. Um, lots of bad things <laughs> can become addictions. And he's, he's waiting, uh, he's, quit, uh, he's quit marijuana, the text says, like 70 or 80 times. And uh, he's on his last, his last um, binge before he quits again. And it's been three hours since his dealer was supposed to have come. And he, here's how he, he deals with this. He wants to call his dealer and say, where are you? But he's afraid that that's creepy. He feels the shame. And so this is what he says. Uh, so this, this character, he pulled down his necktie, uh, he pulled his necktie down smooth while he gathered his intellect, will, self-knowledge, uh, and conviction, and determined that when this latest uh, woman came, this dealer came, as she surely would, this would simply be his very last marijuana debauch. He'd simply smoke so much, so fast, that it would be so unpleasant, and the memory of it so repulsive, that once he'd consumed it, and gotten it out of his home and his life as quickly as possible, he would never want to do it again. Okay? This is the lie of shame. If you abuse yourself hard enough, you will be free. The truth is, self-abuse is literally bondage. The, the lie is, through bondage, you will become free. That's not the truth. Um, so what's the reality? What does shame actually do for us? Um, shame doesn't give us control. Shame takes control. Uh, what does it do? It leads to hard-heartedness. This is a phrase that gets repeated in the Old Testament and the New Testament, hard-heartedness. Uh, the Pharaoh dealing with Moses was hard-hearted. Uh, and then in the New Testament, Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened 
by sin's deceitfulness. Okay, we get this hardness and we get this deceitfulness. So what is the deceitfulness? The deceitfulness says, just this one last time. This is it. This is the last one. Maybe I'll just hook up with someone this weekend. I know I'm not supposed to, um, but I'll just surf the web for some pictures tonight. No videos. Maybe I'll just kind of zone out, start thinking about someone else when I'm with my spouse tonight. I've had a long week. I deserve this. The truth is, no, you absolutely do not deserve the grief and the shame uh, of those things, of sexual acting out. So that's the deceitfulness of sin. What's hard-heartedness? A hard heart is a dull heart, and it's a stubborn heart. Um, A dull heart can't feel shame anymore, or at least not as badly. Uh, But our friend Breen Brown, the shameologist, uh, has learned that there's no such thing as selective dampening of feelings, okay? You can't selectively, you can't pick the feelings you want, okay? But you can dull your ability to feel pretty well um, if you so choose. That's a hard heart. Um, She talks about every kind of addiction, every kind of habit that just sort of gets us out um, of that feeling of shame for a second, only to throw us in more afterward. Um, So there's no selective dulling of the feelings. There's only a general flattening of affect, flat affect. Uh, is the term we use today. I don't mean to air quote it. I don't mean that's a real thing (laughs) in my experience. Um, And here's the thing about shame that I found so bizarre. It turns out shame itself, for me, has been utterly addictive. Okay, I thought shame was going to be the way out of my addiction, and it turns out shame was the way in. Okay? Okay. Studies have shown, Matt actually told me this, uh, Pastor Matt, told me studies have shown if you look at the human brain um, uh, during uh, sex and during orgasm, the part of the brain that processes fear is basically throttled. Like you cannot feel fear in that moment. You can't feel bad in that moment. For that one, two, three seconds, you're free. You're free from all shame only to have it come back in force in four seconds, okay? Um, So what I found is that uh, there's this cycle of I feel shame, so I act out to get away from the shame, so I feel shame, so I act out to get... Do you see the cycle? Um, This is, by the way, the alcoholics. AA figured this out a long time ago. We have them to thank for a lot of this stuff. Um... Of course, a lot of it was in the Bible, too. <laughs> um, but AA absolutely help us think about this stuff. Okay. So, what is shame? Shame is um, Satan's message that we're unlovable, that we don't belong. What do we do with it? We want to use it for control. We found out that it controls us. So, what do we do with it? Well, there's our solution Uh, and there's God's solution. My solution was the fig leaf. My solution was, as we just saw, self-abuse. It was the crummy fix, and it turned out it wasn't a solution at all. Um, God's solution is different. 
So we saw that there's this cycle of um, sin and shame. Which, which part do you think God starts on? The part that offends him, the sin, or the part that's killing us, the shame? God's not like me, <laughs> thank God. God starts on what's killing us, the shame. He takes our shame away. He allows for consequence. Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden. There are consequences, but not every consequence. Do you, do you remember what he said? He said, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. They didn't die, did they? Uh, they entered into mortality. Um, but what does God do? It turns out, if you keep reading Genesis, um, God sees the pitiful fig leaves and he replaces them with skins, the skins of animals. We have the first sacrifice in the Bible in Genesis. These animals were slaughtered um, by God uh, for Adam and Eve's sin. There's, who knows what it was, I'm guessing they were vegetarians uh, in the garden. And uh, for the sin, um, we had to be covered up, uh, Adam and Eve had to be covered up with the skin of animals. Um, different um, uh, scholars of the Bible have pointed out this was foreshadowing, of course. God put the skins on us, but he knew that that wasn't the permanent fix. God knew that the permanent fix was putting the skin on himself and coming down and taking our place. This is how we get no condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.2, this is one of the most bizarre and, and absolutely like mystical verses in the Bible to me. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.2 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, it's not saying God died for, like took our sins upon himself. There are other verses that say that. This says God became, Jesus became sin. I don't even understand the ramifications of that, uh, but Jesus actually becomes sin. He took the shame that we had earned and nailed it to the cross, okay? Think about that. Think about if, if Jesus hadn't even died, if he had just been roped up there on the cross, naked, stripped, uh, just the public shaming of it. If you remember what I said at the beginning, public shaming is too cruel and unusual. Like, um, some, sta some states actually still kill people. What if the actual physical part wasn't even as bad as that shame part? for Jesus on the cross. Okay. So thank God, thank God, thank God. We have, uh, we have an answer for our shame. We have a way to get out of the cycle. And here's where I got some bad news. That's not it. I would love to tell you, that's it. Get better. Everything's fine. Turns out uh, that there's this super annoying verse in James. Boy, nobody likes this one less than I do. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. No. <laughs> Therefore, confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed. Uh, and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It's a team sport. Nobody likes this less than me. Salvation is from God. All we have to do is ask for that, um, and we have it. Healing is contingent upon our willingness to talk about it. So what's our action point? What's our bullet point this morning? Here it is. Who can you talk to? Is there anyone in your life who knows everything? If so, 
You're one of the lucky ones. You truly are. Um, I've met all sorts of people with all sorts of secrets. Um, So who do we confess to? We can't just confess to anyone. (laughs) You can get your head ripped off that way. Sad to say. We've got to find safe people. What's a safe person? A safe person is one who listens. Man, that sounds so obvious. (laughs) I wish it were more obvious to more people. A safe person is someone who actually listens, A. A safe person is one who doesn't immediately jump to advice giving. A safe person is someone who doesn't judge. A safe person is someone who will be compassionate. A safe person looks at you and says, that sounds awful for you. They don't say, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's not so bad. They don't say, at least X. If you start with at least, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, a safe person says, I have compassion for you. I can identify with what you're going through, even if it's not exactly the same. I can identify with that. And it's amazing what this does for a soul. So, who's your safe person? Can you find one this week? Okay. So now what I'd like to do, um, go from shame to grace. Um, I'd like to share a little bit about what all this uh, has uh, done in my life. Um, Here's the fun part. Here's me. So, my story. So when I was 12, um, I had the um, biggest catastrophe happen to me in my life ever. I had to move from sunny California to Cincinnati, Ohio. (laughs) Legitimately. Um, I would go on to get cancer. This was worse. And I'll tell you why. Um, I had moved a number of times before. Um, sometimes in state, sometimes out of state. I never really had too much of a problem finding friends. It was fine. Everything was okay. Junior high um, for the new kid in the, in the middle of winter. <laughs> Gosh, it was so bad. Um, <laughs> uh, middle of winter, uh, junior high, moving to a new place, and finally for the first time, not being able to find anyone who seemed to think I was worth anything. I remember specifically, I remember specifically being in line at lunch and I would get, I'd have my tray and I would get my slop and I would get my more slop and I'd get my milk. And every step I would get closer and closer to the cashier and what followed the cashier, which was finding a seat and that terror, that sickness in my stomach that was the hardest thing I've ever gone through. That was the worst. Talk about shame. Talk about my feelings of being unlovable. Not just being unloved. That's one thing uh, to say I am unloved. It's another thing to say I am unlovable. And I absolutely internalized this. I absolutely told myself, what's the value of a person that nobody likes? What's, what's that person worth? Nothing. My life was useless to me. Sometimes I wonder if I wasn't afraid of what God would do. Sometimes I wonder what I would have done to myself, how far I would have gone to relieve myself of that shame and that pain. Summer after my eighth grade year, I survived that. I went to Young Life Camp. Anyone ever heard of Young Life Camp? 
All right. Young Life Camp changed my life. Um, I stopped being so concerned with what I thought about myself and what I thought God should think about me that I was like, okay, what, what do, I'll stop telling you what you should think <laughs> and I'll start accepting what you do think and that's love. And I experienced tremendous grace. Um, high school was, uh, was a pretty good time for me. Um, much, much better. I started finding friends. This is also about the time when the internet starts to become a thing. Online pornography starts to become a thing. And so I developed this um, cycle of sin and shame that I've been speaking about all morning. Excuse me. I would act out, I would feel the shame from acting out, and then I would act out. Um, this continued uh, through uh, the end of high school and into college. Um, various girlfriends, I, you know, I thought I was a pretty good boyfriend. I, I bought flowers, I paid for dinners. Um, I did all the good boyfriend stuff, I listened. Um, what else I did? Looking back, I realized how pushy I was. Um, I realized uh, I was never physically forceful, thank God. But I realized how emotionally manipulative I was to get what I wanted to out of those relationships. I realized how much I would push boundaries. Um, every boundary I set, uh, I, and we would set them. I would be a part of this. I, I agree. We are going too far physically. And then every, every week, farther and farther still. Um, that contributed to the slow death of those relationships. I graduated college uh, and I moved to the big city. I got into NYU. All right. Ever heard of it? No big deal. Um, so I moved to the big city and, and, and I had this weird experience where my ego was like through the roof. Like, look how smart I am. Look how cool I am. And living in New York City, also I am nothing. Uh, if you're one in a million, there's eight of you in New York City. Um, like everyone, like in Cincinnati, like, okay, like you might be smarter than I am, but I'm funnier than you are, or, or you might be like better looking, but I got better grace. Like in New York, I would meet people that like, oh my gosh, you're smarter and you're better looking and you're, and you play guitar better than I do? Are you serious? Like for the first time, like, like every, like it was just like I was nothing. And, and I realized, well, I realize now, like look at the things I'd been setting my identity on. My, I, I'd been, how had I been blocking shame? I'd been using the fig leaf of, well, I'm smart enough. I am smart enough. Well, I'm talented enough. Well, you know, I'm funny. It's fine. I'm likable. Um, these were my fig leaves, and New York didn't care about my fig leaves. So what did I do? Guess what I did. I started, uh, my use of pornography got worse. Started acting out with women more frequently. At some level, I kid you not, at some level, it was clear to me, I honestly thought, this was just below conscious level, I honestly thought, if I can just act out with women in New York, if I could just be sexual with women in New York, I'll have made it in the city. That is what I actually thought. Listen to how crazy that is. Did they matter to me? No. I was, I was trying to use them, these images online of women, these women I would meet in bars. I was, I was trying to get what I needed out of them. I didn't care about them. And yet, the insanity inside my head was, well, well I matter to them. Like, this, this matters. This makes me matter. It's insane. Literally insane. 
Um, so I had a, comp a compartmentalized life. Thank God I had the grace of knowing that I had to talk to people about it at every step of the way. I had this friend named Mike. Well, I'll call him Mike, because that was his name. Um, uh, I had this friend named Mike uh, who was part of a campus group called Navigators. Okay. And this campus group was like the one good thing I had. Th this was like my group of friends in the big city. Uh, this was a group of believers who I was walking with. And I was, and I would meet with Mike. He, he was um, a volunteer leader. He was probably about 30. I was about 25, a grad student, something like this. Uh, so he's a little bit older than me, a lot bit wiser than me. And I would come to him every week on Tuesday, and I would say, here's what I did on Saturday. And I was pretty open with him the whole way. I'd kind of had a compartmentalized life, okay? Here's my good group of friends, and here's what I do on the weekend. But at least, thank God, I had the grace to at least talk this through with a friend. <sighs> Can't imagine if I didn't. Well, guess what? I broke through that compartmentalization. Um, I drew that line, that boundary. <laughs> Every bound. <laughs> wow. Addicts and boundaries, right? Um, I drew that boundary of I don't act out with these people, and I broke it. There was a girl in the, um, there's a woman in the Navigators, and I sort of manipulated. I was very pushy, I can see now. Um, acted out with her. Um, she interpreted that as, oh, we're together now. I didn't want that. And so I had to tell her. Um, Look, this is, and, and I knew I wasn't any good for her. I knew that. Um, uh, and I told her, look, this, I, I can't be in a relationship with you. Look at me. Um, I have simply used you. I didn't use those terms, but that's the truth. So I get a call from my friend Mike after I had reduced this woman to tears. I get a call from Mike and he invites me over to his apartment to play board games <laughs> with he and his wife, with him and his wife. <laughs> English professor. <laughs> with him and his wife. Um, I specifically remember my hands when I was walking up the steps to this guy's apartments, I specifically remember how pale and literally shaking and sweaty my hands were as I was walking up the steps off the subway to this guy's apartment. Why? Because I'd thrown it all away. I knew, there, I knew, I knew the score. I knew that not only was I, had I been abusing myself in these ways sexually for, um, had I had this pattern for years, of doing this, now I'd crossed the line. Now I had become a cancer to this group of people. I, I knew I deserved to be thrown out. Um, I was now causing harm to this guy's flock. He was, he was, he was kind of a sort of a pastor figure. Th these were the people he's investing into, and I'm working against what he's working to do. I threw it all away, and I knew it. <sighs> and I get it. Um, he opens the door, I come inside, and sure enough, there was like risk and like stratego, and I was like, really? <laughs> uh, and I said, look, let's, let's cut the garbage straight up. You have to kick me out of Navigators, don't you? I did, like, honestly, honestly, I deserve it. I know that. And Mike looked at me, and he said, Trevor, Jesus was kicked out of Navigators so that you don't have to be. Oh. <laughs> 
the bells of heaven. <laughs> oh, I never get through that part, dry-eyed. Um, Jesus was kicked out of navigator, so you don't have to be, and I wept like a baby. I screamed and yelled. <laughs> it broke my heart because I'd experienced grace. And in that moment, that broke the back of my addiction. Didn't kill it, but that moment of grace absolutely broke the back of my addiction. Um, I got cancer. I got better. It's a story for another time. <laughs> At this point, I'll tell you that story some other time. Um, after this, I uh, went home to Cincinnati to get treated. I uh, came back, uh, and I met my darling wife. Um, we weren't married yet when we met. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I was, at this point, I was on the road to recovery. I, I didn't know that's what it was <laughs> at the time, but I was, I was doing better. And yet, and yet, and yet, the patterns returned. The patterns returned. I found myself pushing again every single boundary, every boundary I pushed. Uh, this was, uh, 2008, 2009, um, you might've heard the stock market crash. And, uh, and that affected, we were, we were like there. Uh, we couldn't get jobs in New York. We ended up moving to um, uh, Texas. We found places, uh, we were still dating, not married yet. We found places about almost like a mile apart. That was really grace. Found a job right away in Texas. They didn't hear about the Wall Street crash, I guess. Um, finally got to the point where I Skyped my um, counselor uh, back in New York, a guy named Jay. Boy, this guy, uh, he was the best. And I said, Jay, if this was anything else, if this was drinking, I'd be an alcoholic. If this was cocaine, I would be a drug addict. Like I have, it's been 15 years and like almost nothing. What do I do? Like what, how do I, <laughs> I'm done. Like, okay, call it, it's over. What do I do? Is this, can you be addicted to sex? Um, and Jay said, well, there's this place you can go. It's called Celebrate Recovery. Celebrate Recovery, uh, I've, I've spoken about uh, up front here. This was a, maybe a couple years ago. And it's a place where they take the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. These 12 steps are pure gold. Uh, they take those 12 steps and they apply it to the rest of us. Um, uh, even people without addiction I have seen work these 12 steps, and they are magic. They are the gospel, actually. If you, if you look at them, steps one, two, and three, um, are literally the gospel. So I started working, uh, working these steps. I started getting in a group where I could talk. I confessed my sins and I was healed. And that's all it was. I kept expecting there to be like some like final boss. Like I play video games a lot. And I was like, what's, what's the final fight where I can finally like, ugh. And that's not what it was. It was just slowly over time talking through this stuff, um, admitting what I've done, meeting with nothing but grace, over the course of a year, it's like, huh, I haven't acted out in a couple weeks. That's a new streak. Huh, I haven't acted out in a month. It's been two months. Today, um, from the worst of my acting out, I've been sober for eight years, um, and it's been four years since I've looked at pornography at all. You can give me a hand for that. <laughs> we, clap, we clap for each other. Um, in the NCR, in because we need it. I need it. I need encouragement. 
So um, the sobriety I've had, and, and I call, I've learned to call it sobriety. That might sound weird, but that's what we call it. Uh, we call it sobriety. Has absolutely nothing to do with my own willpower. I tried willpower for 15 years. Didn't work once. Uh, it's because every week to this day, I sit in a circle of men and women who are broken, and I tell them how my day went. I tell them what I'm really feeling. I tell them what I really think, how I've been really tempted. I call people on the phone and talk about it. So I've got a lot of problems. You can ask Vanessa. <laughs> She'll tell you. Um, I've got a lot of problems, but I, what I want to communicate to you is, like, look at me right now. Like, look at what I'm doing. <laughs> In this moment, I'm not so bad. Praise God. I am able to share all of this stuff. I'm able to share all my grief. I can't be found out. If shame is the fear of being found out, I can't be found out. You already know. Ha <laughs> ha. I live in, ab like, it is, like, I, I forget sometimes, like, how free I really am. This freedom that I didn't experience um, in college, in high school at all. I, because I was, I was ashamed. I was afraid someone would find out. Now you can't. <laughs> you already have. And the amount of grace I've received, the message that I hear every week when I go to these meetings is, yeah, you did screw up. Yes, of course we still love you. And that has sunk to my soul. It sinks deeper every day. Thank God. So, who are your safe friends, folks? Who are the people you can talk to that will listen? If you have these people, um, are there any habits uh, that you need to address with them? Um, what's the difference between a habit and an addiction, by the way? What's the difference? I'm not sure. Habit is something that you can quit? Okay. If it's a habit, then quit, right? You're not doing it. You're hurting yourself. You're hurting God. Then quit. If you can't, is that an addiction? I don't know. Can you, is there someone you can talk to today? And maybe... Maybe you're like me. Maybe you're not. Maybe, maybe your cycle of shame, if you have one, has nothing to do with sex. Um, I'm guessing a lot of us do have um, some sexual shame. And I absolutely hope that you can, as I have, get some grace. Find some grace. Who can you talk to this week? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for being a God who removes chains, who wants freedom for us, who wants freedom so bad that you're willing to give anything, that you're willing to give your own son so that we can get some relief. God, I thank you for my experience. What a story you've written. God, and it wasn't because I reached down deep and I overcame God, it was because I surrendered. It's because I surrendered to you. God, I pray for that kind of freedom in the lives and more in the lives of everyone, everyone here this morning. God, that they would experience that kind of freedom and more. Amen. Yes. Oh, I, I think I can. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Uh, so what Bill's referring to is we're about to go to communion. 
On the way we do things at Exodus Church, uh, we might be a little different than what you've experienced. Um, we'll have a uh, few people come up here. They'll hold the bread and the cup. What we do is we tear the bread and we dip. Um, we don't drink out of the cup. We dip into the cup. Um, anyone who is following Christ today is welcome. The standard is absolutely not perfection because then what's the point? Uh, the, uh, Jesus sacrifices for the imperfect, not the perfect. Standard is not perfection. But if you know that there's some part of your life um, where you're stiff-arming God, if you know that there's some part of your life that, where you're saying, this is mine and I want it to be mine, I'm not willing to surrender this, um, then as Matt said, it's, it's in your interest not to take. Um, this is not a shaming place. This is a safe place. We don't look, <laughs> I'm not keeping track, at who's up and who's down. Uh, it's, you know, everyone goes as they wish. No one's keeping track of this stuff. Um, and that's it. So I'll invite the uh, uh, band to come up now. I'll invite the uh, folks to come up and uh, let's take the Eucharist. The Things to 
to the song set, please. Um, so there's a song that we do a lot called Lord, I Need You. And I'm going to try to find the right key real quick. <laughs> um, so, and this hits on almost everything that Trevor was talking about, too. And it even talks about some of the AA stuff as well. So... If I'm not mistaken, Trevor, like one of the things that you say in the 12 steps is like, I'm powerless like over this thing. I'm powerless over this addiction. Uh, I can't do it on my own. And you say that. And like one of the things that I found in my life is that it's sometimes actually kind of easy for me to tell my wife, like, I love you. And it's easy for me to tell my mom, like, I love you. But to actually say, I need you, like that puts it on a whole new level. So when you're saying to God, like, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. I confess to you. Like, that puts it on a completely new level. So, like, yeah, this song just really struck me as we were doing this. And then, yeah, so if you'll bear with me, we'll just play a couple more songs and just um, worship together. Um, can we start with the Lord, I come slide, please? see. <laughs> I don't know if it's this one or not. Um, so it's, um, Lord, I come and I confess that bowing here I find my rest. And without you I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Yeah. 
Precies. To change my song to rise with you. When temptation comes my way. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. When I can't stand. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. so grateful for you. We need you. 